This is what I got when I was six or seven for, for Christmas. Um, it did not look like this. Uh, this was in pristine condition when I got it. It was in perfect shape. This was a G.I. Joe helicopter. It's pretty cool, right, Brian? I mean, imagine what it would have looked like then. Um, for about two months, it stayed in perfect condition. All the propellers were on it, all the rockets, all the um, windows to keep the G.I. Joes from falling out as they were flying through the air. You know, all of it was on, the wheels were on so it could land safely um, for about two months. But then uh, the wonder of this, this toy... Uh, this amazing work of art is what it was. Uh, the wonder of it wore off, though, after about two months. And, uh, you know, it was dropped, it was kicked around, it was forgotten about, and I moved on to many different other toys that I had. And eventually it was put in a box that was put up in an attic somewhere, uh, which is why I have it now, because my dad got it down from the attic, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, and uh, it was missing most of the propellers, but it, it had a lot more than it does now, because I gave it to my son to play with, and he was in awe of it for a while. He was in, in wonder of this amazing G.I. Joe helicopter, especially when he realized it was daddy's when, when he was about his age. And that wonder lasted for about three days. And then it was also discarded. It was dropped even more, which is why it's in the shape you see it in right now. And uh, parents, if you have small children, you can definitely identify with that, right? You know what it is every single Christmas, every birthday, whenever there's gifts given, uh, you, you rack your brain at what to get them, and then you, you also destroy your budget in getting them those things, uh, and you watch with anticipation as they open up that amazing gift, and you see their face filled with wonder, and it fills your heart with joy, and all that's good and well, and if you're lucky, you've got two days of that. If you're very, very lucky, that wonder and that awe and that excitement, that'll last for about two days. Sometimes it's as little as two minutes, because they, they move on to the next awesome thing, and, and that's just the cycle that we, we go through, especially when we have um, smaller children. And uh, it's definitely not just children that that's true of. Um, we adults, especially around this time of year and as it relates to Christmas, uh, the wonder, the magic of Christmas that we all feel as children, it is very easy to lose, isn't it? And the older we get and the farther along in life we go, it becomes even easier to lose that wonder. And I think that some of the reason for that is because we are just so stressed out all the time, uh, especially with Christmas. We pack so much into that month and that we can't even stop to think we can't even stop to rest. And it's really ironic because of all the seasons, the Christmas season is really the one that we should be stopping the most for. 
It's really the one that we should allow our minds to just focus on the beauty and the, the miracle that Christmas really is. But we're, we're so busy and we're so full of pressure and we're so stressed that we don't do that. And so I think we get distracted from the wonder that is there. Another reason I think that it's so easy to lose the wonder and so hard to keep it is because I think that our attention is often in the wrong things. And our focus is often on the wrong things. We look for the wonder in the wrong places, I think, a lot of the time. We focus more on the amazing lights and more on the music and more on the presents that we're getting and hoping that we receive and more on the Hallmark Christmas movies and everything than we're focusing on the heart of Christmas. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with beautiful Christmas lights and Christmas plays and Christmas music and even Christmas movies on Hallmark. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that one I can't really give you. No, just kidding. Um, the point is, the wonder of Christmas, it's not in any of those things. The wonder of Christmas is Christ. And it's what the Father did in sending us Christ. That's the wonder, that's the miracle of Christmas. And so for the next four Sundays in this series, what I really want us to do is, is I want us to just stop. I know I can't make you stop all during the week. I mean, there's, there's just too much going on and and I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. But when you come in these doors each Sunday, I want us all, myself included, just to stop and to think and contemplate about the wonder of Christmas, what all is involved in that, what it really means. And I, I hope that that wonder will, will fill our hearts, will fill our minds, will capture us again, just like it did when we were children. And I hope that as we are captured by that wonder again, and I pray this, that it will fill our hearts and our minds, that it will just kind of set fire to our hearts again, but that it won't be contained just there, that it will also be seen in our lives, far beyond this season, every single day. That's my hope and that's my prayer. And I hope it is yours as well. Father, as we jump in to your word, as we start this series I pray that by your spirit you would ignite our hearts again around the wonder of Christmas. And, and Father, let it not be limited to just the Christmas season. Let it truly be something that starts now, that is stoked and kindled now, but that continues and grows far beyond December 25th. Work in us, I pray. Draw our attention to the wonder of your work in Christmas. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at different aspects of the wonder of Christmas, the wonder that is contained in Christmas throughout this series. But the first aspect that I want us to really consider is the wonder of participation. The wonder of participation. And the two probably most profound, powerful examples in all of Scripture of people that participated in the amazing work of God, uh, I believe are Mary and Joseph. 
And their account of participating in God's work and the miracle and wonder of Christmas is found largely in Luke uh, chapter 1, 26-38, and also Matthew 1, 18-25. Those are very familiar passages. I'm not going to read every single verse. Um, I think sometimes when we are really familiar with the passage, sometimes it's better to visualize and picture the events and the situations rather than just reading it line by line all the time. I am going to highlight a few verses for us to focus in on, but I want you just to, to picture in your mind... A dusty street, a dusty Israeli street, palm trees around. And I want you to picture a young teenage girl, 13 to 15 years old. She's walking through the streets, dust is kicking up around her feet. Maybe she has a a jar of water that she's carrying back to her family as part of her household chores. Maybe she's stopping to rest under the shade of a palm tree. Maybe she's on her way to go meet her friends to play a game. And all of a sudden, this person appears to her. And he looks like a man, but it's obvious he's much more than that. He's glorious and, and bright and large and incredibly intimidating. And, and as if that weren't enough, he speaks to her and he knows that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, a, a carpenter named Joseph. Betrothed goes much more than just being engaged. It goes beyond that. It's actually a legal binding contract, a, an arrangement of marriage that to do away with actually has to be uh, brought before a court and there has to be something like a divorce done. And he knows that about her. And he greets her. He knows her by name. She's never seen him in her life. And he says, greetings, Mary, oh, favored one. And that that really takes her back. She's like, who, me? Are you talking to me? She's looking around. "Uh, Me? What What do you mean by, oh, favored one? Who are you? What is all this about? And she's scared, as we would imagine a teenage girl would be, or anybody for that matter, being encountered by such a being as this out of nowhere, who knows everything about you already, who knows your name, and who gives you this mysterious greeting and title, oh, favored one. Especially knowing who you are, you're very simple, and you're mostly forgotten. But that's what he says to her. And then he says this, Luke one thirty says, And the angel said to her, and the angel was Gabriel, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. A God who had been largely silent from his people for 500 years. Now he tells this little peasant teenage girl, You have found favor with God Almighty. And behold, you will conceive in your womb 13, 14, maybe 15-year-old girl. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he goes on and he tells her how great this son, this Jesus, will be. That he'll be called Son of the Most High God. And that the Father will establish 
his kingdom forever, that he'll give him the throne of his ancestor David as promised, as foretold, as prophesied. And then Mary asks a very logical question. She says, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, how can this happen? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was formerly called barren, but no more. Why? Verse 37 tells us, for nothing will be impossible with God. And here's this little teenage girl processing all of this for the first time, overwhelmed but showing something remarkable, a willingness to accept and to believe and to respond. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Meanwhile, there's her betrothed, Joseph, And we don't know how long from the events of Gabriel's appearing to Mary and her conversation with him happened. We don't know the gap there, how long that was. Maybe it was immediate. Maybe it was a couple days. Maybe it was a few weeks. But at some point she went to him and told him that she was with child. And that this was going to be an incredibly special child. That this was part of God's plan to redeem his people, and she she told him everything. But Joseph was a simple man. He was a carpenter. He was working with his hands, and that's what he knew. He knew work with his hands. He made furniture and tables that people around town would use, maybe wealthy, maybe people who lived like a king would use what he made, but he would never himself know what it was to live like a king or to be treated like a king. And now he hears that his betrothed is carrying the one who will be the king forever. He was in the line of the kings. He's part of the line of David He has royalty in his blood, but that's been long forgotten. And he'll never know what that is to experience that personally. And now he hears the news that the king of all kings is being carried by his betrothed. And he knows he had nothing to do with it. And so being a simple man, but also a a man of integrity a man of honor and a man who obviously loved his betrothed, Mary, already, he decided instead of bringing her before the Sanhedrin, instead of leveling the charge of adultery, which would surely end her life and possibly that of her family, instead of doing that, which he was in rights to do, he decided, no, I'm going to just end this. I'll just, I'll just go quietly, privately to the magistrate's I'll write up a certificate of divorce and we'll just be done. And I won't bring her any more shame. I won't bring myself any more shame than what I already feel. That's what I'm going to do. 
That's what he decided to do. And then this took place. Matthew 1.20 But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. You will be his earthly father, Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke from sleep, it shows that he also had incredible integrity, incredible willingness, despite how much this did not make sense. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Incredible, isn't it? Just a fantastic, astounding account of two people, very unlikely by any human standards, chosen to participate in God's most astounding, radical rescue plan. And Scripture shows us that Mary and Joseph were common people running on fumes financially. We know that in Scripture. That's the picture we're painted of them. But it also shows that they were people of uncommon character who were full of faith. Common people running on fumes financially. Sound familiar? Many of us could lift up our hands to that, right, and say amen. That's what Mary and Joseph were. But they were also people with incredibly uncommon character and willingness to obey what God called them to. And they were people that were full of faith. And that's exactly the kind of people God is always looking for and eager to use. See, what Mary and Joseph also show us a a picture of what they point to is a reality that is seen over and over again, which is that God loves to do the extraordinary through people the world thinks of as ordinary. God loves to do the extraordinary through people the world thinks of as ordinary. We see that over and over again through the Bible and through human history. Look at the Old Testament, all the different people that God raised up, especially the judges, to deliver his people Israel in fantastic, miraculous ways. They were ordinary people. Think of Gideon. He was hiding from his enemies in a wine vat. And when the Lord Jesus, in the form of the angel of the Lord, appeared to him, he said, he said, Hail, you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, Who, me? And over and over again we see that. And in the New Testament, after Mary and Joseph, and after Jesus had already gone back to heaven, we see the apostles, uneducated, fearful fishermen that were raised up to lead the church. And 3,000 people came to Christ in one day through 
an ordinary man named Peter who had previously denied he even knew Jesus. And all through history, it's the same. It's the same for me. And it's the same for most of us. That God loves to do extraordinary things through people that the world, and by human standards, would say, oh, they're just ordinary, forgetful people. Isn't that great news that God does that? Aren't you thankful for that? Paul reminded the Corinthian church of, of this fact, this pattern of God in his letters to them, and we need that reminder too. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-29, through 29, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Consider the way God called you to himself. Consider how you came to faith. Not many were wise from a human perspective, Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Notice he didn't say none. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong uh, with people being profoundly wise or people uh, being powerful and prominent or being from noble birth. It's just saying not many of you could say that. That's not the majority. Instead, verse 27, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. See the way God works in opposites as we define opposite? See the contrast that God loves to put on display? Why does he do all that? Why does he work that way? Verse 29 tells us, so that no one may boast in his presence. And no one will boast in his presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6-7 through seven say this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, think of the creation When there was darkness and light and God cascaded light into the darkness. Think of John 1, the prologue, talking about Jesus, the eternal light, the eternal word coming into the world. And John writes of him there and says, In him, in Jesus was light, and he was the light of the world, the light of all man. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure, the treasure of the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Church, we're told by culture and society, starting at a very early age, to make sure your voice is heard. Make sure your voice is heard. Make sure the world knows your name. Show everyone what you can do. We're inundated with that message, aren't we? From very early on, all the way through our lives. 
but my fellow follower of Christ. What the passages that we just read teach us, what Mary and Joseph teach us, what the entire Christmas story and narrative shout to us is this. Life is not about you. And life is not about me. Our purpose on earth is not to promote ourselves. It's to point people to the Savior. That's our entire purpose on earth. The reason when you come to Christ, when you receive the gift of Christmas... Jesus come, Emmanuel come, God with us, the hope of nations, the hope of glory, the hope of life and love and joy and purpose and peace. When you come to Christ and you receive that gift for yourself, the reason you are not instantly taken up to heaven is because God has a purpose for you on earth. And he has a purpose for me, but it is not to promote ourselves and to bring glory to ourselves. It's to point people to the Savior we have come to know and to give him glory and majesty and honor in all things. And we do that, we point people to the Savior by, first and foremost, by verbally proclaiming the gospel, as in, intentionally telling about the person and the work of Jesus. More on that next week as we continue on. But we need to understand and remember, we need to keep in mind that we also do it, we also point to Jesus, the Savior, by practically demonstrating the difference Jesus makes in our day-to-day lives. In our relationships, and how we treat people in our marriages, husbands and wives. How we love one another. How I love my wife and how my wife loves me. That shows Jesus to people. That points to Jesus. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul writes what he does about wives submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the whole reason that we we come together as husband and wives is to show the mystery of the love Jesus has for the church and to give him glory. So as as I go about my marriage, I have the opportunity to point people to Jesus in my marriage. How I I treat my children and how I raise them, parent. I have an opportunity to to point them to Jesus. And I have an opportunity to point other people to Jesus as they see my parenting. As we treat other people, our friends, our external family, beyond our husband and our wives and our children, as as we treat our neighbors, we have an opportunity to point people to Jesus and how we treat people. In our work, how we do our work out in the world, the level of integrity and character that we show, the level of dependability and responsibility that we exhibit in the workplace. We have an opportunity to point our employers and our co-workers to Jesus as they see the quality of our work. Listen, church, if you're out there, you have a job out in the world, when people know you're a Christian, you should give them the opportunity to see in you the best possible employee any employer could ever have. 
You should give every coworker the chance to look at you and say they've never seen a coworker like you. If you own a Christian business, your business should be at the top of the list in quality and performance and productivity. We should do everything we do with excellence, not for our sake, not so people can say, wow, look at them, but so people can say, wow, look at the difference Jesus makes. We have the opportunity to show people Jesus in all of those things. We have the opportunity to show Jesus to people and and how we go about the work of God. We have the opportunity, church, think about this, we have the opportunity to participate in the work of the living God within the local church. Not only do we have the opportunity to, to point people to Jesus by what we do here in the church, we have the opportunity, the privilege of participating in what he's doing in hearts and minds and souls and lives. And we do that through our serving. That means don't look at, don't look at serving in the nursery as just serving in the nursery. Look at it as participating in the work of God. Look at it as building the kingdom of God by starting with infants and toddlers. If you're teaching a, a Sunday school class, don't look at it as just doing your duty in that way. Look at it as, wow, I'm participating in the very work of God in this place. As you greet people that come in this place and you hand them a bulletin, don't look at it as just simply that. You're participating in the work of God by welcoming people in where they can hear about God. They can be encouraged by Him, where they can come to Him for the first time if they never have before, where they can be rejuvenated spiritually and emotionally as they come here, where they can sing praise to the living God. You're welcoming them. You're that first friendly face. Maybe they've seen all week. You're the first question of how they're doing, maybe that they've heard all week long. And you're participating in God's work in their lives in that moment, right at the beginning, as soon as they walk through the door. As you're serving coffee and getting that ready for people, you're giving them a chance to fellowship one with another and encourage one another as fellow believers. You're participating in the work of God. You're back there running the computer screens so people can follow along with the Word of God and see points of emphasis that maybe will resonate in their heart. Thank you, Tom. Tom, you are participating in the work of God this morning and pretty much every week Thank you. Church, listen, what I'm saying in all of this is if you're a Christian, you're part of the body. And if you're part of the body, you're called to serve that body. And there's two reasons for doing that. To point people to the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to participate in what he's doing in the body. And that means none of us are just anything. None of us are just doing anything. Not, nothing is, is small in the kingdom. Everything matters, everything counts, and everything has the potential for great things to take place because it's God's work and we're participating in it. What a privilege. What an honor. And as we go about these things, as we, as we go about life in this way, as we seek to love our spouse 
by participating in his work in our spouse's lives. As we go about our parenting and we seek to point our children to Jesus and we participate in his work in their lives, as we go about our work, as we go about serving in the church, yeah, people are going to see us mess up. People are going to see us come up short. People are going to see our mess. People are going to see our hypocrisy from time to time. People are going to see our inconsistencies. Yes, that's going to happen. Because after all, we're just clay jars. We're very fragile. It wouldn't take anything at all for me to drop this little clay pot and it just to break in a million pieces. It wouldn't take anything at all for there to be cracks and crevices and holes in it. That's the thing about clay jars. They're not really that strong. They're very simple and they're prone to weakness. But the the great thing about a a clay jar, if you put a light in it, like 2 Corinthians 4-7 is talking about, that analogy, if you put a light in a clay jar that has holes in it, It doesn't keep the light from shining through. In fact, it helps the light shine through even more through those holes and through those cracks. And my friends, beloved in Christ, the same is true for you and me. Yeah, we're clay vessels, we're clay jars, and we've got holes in us and we've got cracks. But our imperfection does not keep the perfection of Christ from shining through. In fact, it's made all the more evident through us. Rejoice in that today, church. Rejoice that not only does God use you in spite of your weakness, but he actually redeems your weakness. He redeems those holes in your life and uses them to display the light of his glory even more. A big part of the wonder of Christmas is that God chose to do such significant work through such insignificant instruments. That's the wonder of Christmas. That such a big God would choose to do such monumental work as bringing his son to earth, to us, to save us, to redeem all mankind. That's big work. That's significant. Far more significant than any work anyone could ever have imagined to be done. And he did that through insignificant instruments like a, a poor teenage girl and a poor carpenter. He did such significant work through such insignificant instruments. That's the wonder, a big part anyway, of the wonder of the Christmas story. And church, we need today and every day to believe and remember that God calls each of us to participate in and experience that wonder every single day. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us, as insignificant as we are, to be the instruments through which he brings about significant work. And he calls us to participate in that. Think about that. That he's calling you, with all of your weakness and all of your flaws and all of your shortcomings, to come and be part of what he uses to bring about his work in man. 
He's calling you to participate in that wonder and also to experience it yourself. Because, yeah, serving God can be scary at times. Serving Him can be uncomfortable at times. It can be unknown and and unfamiliar and unsafe by human standards in some ways. I mean, just look at Mary and Joseph and what God put on them and put in their lap. I mean, they were afraid. They were human. They were overwhelmed at first. But they looked past that and they decided that being part of God's plan was worth it. And they decided and experienced very quickly that there's no safer place than right in the center of God's will. And they also experienced that there is no greater reward or fulfillment or joy in life than to be part of what God is doing. And that's exactly what God wants you to know. It's what he wants you to experience every single day day. And through his son, he's given us the presence and the power of his spirit to help us do exactly that. We need that help. We can't participate in and fully experience the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of God's glory, the wonder of God's work every single day on our own, in our own strength, in our power. We can't. But that's why we have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us. That's the wonder of Christmas. Do you know that wonder today? Do you personally know that, that wonder, the wondrous truth of Christmas? If not, there is no better time. If you do know it, then remember it and be in awe all over again. And then go out and share that wonder with others. Proclaim it. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to be talking about the wonder of proclamation. I hope you make plans to join us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible miracle of Christmas. I thank you for the wonder of Christmas. And I pray, I pray if there is anyone here who has not yet embraced that wonder personally, they have not yet come to the gift of your son, I pray that right now would be the time that they are surrendering themselves to that gift, to the gift, the gift of your son Jesus and the salvation that he alone provides. May right now, if anyone has not committed themselves fully to Jesus, may they do that, may they say to him, Jesus, I believe you came. I believe you really are the miracle of Christmas and I believe you came for me You came to give me life. I receive it, and I give you my life. Be my Lord and Savior. I pray that that would be what is being spoken in in someone's mind and heart to you as a prayer. And if that's the case, Father, I rejoice in the promise of your word that says you hear that, you receive that, and you apply what is requested. For those of us who have experienced the wonder of Christmas personally. We've experienced the change of life that comes from knowing Jesus personally as Savior and Lord. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to wonder at it all over again. And help us to share that wonder with others. But may they see it in our lives and not just hear it from our lips. Empower us, I pray, by your Spirit to point people to Jesus in our marriages, in our families, in our work, in our ministry in the local church, and to look for opportunities 
of participating in the wonder of your work. And may we see it as exactly that. I pray all of this in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen.